One of the most famous letters Abraham Lincoln ever wrote was to a widow who lost five sons in the Union Army. But our guest today says she didn't lose five sons, and Lincoln never wrote that letter. We'll find out who did when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Hi, Tom Bodette from Motel 6 with a word for business travelers. Seems business has its own language these days, full of buzzwords, like buzzword or net-net. And after a day spent whiteboarding a matrix of action items and deliverables, it's nice to know you can always outsource your accommodation needs to the nearest Motel 6. You'll get a clean, comfortable room for the lowest price, net-net, of any national chain, plus data ports and free local calls. In case you tabled your discussion and need to reconvene offline. So you can think of Motel 6 as your total business travel solution provider, vis-a-vis cost-effective lodging alternatives for Q1 through Q4, I think. Just call 1-800-4-MOTEL-6 or visit motel6.com. I'm Tom Bodette for Motel 6, and we'll maintain the lighting device in its current state of illumination for you. Motel 6 and a core hotel. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Michael Burlingame, author of The Inner World of Abraham Lincoln, and a man notorious for the zest with which he researches previously undiscovered archives dealing with Lincoln. In our first segment, we were talking about this very subject and just getting to the point of how it is that so much undiscovered material could still be out there. And Michael, you mentioned you found uh, your, your initial finding was in at Brown University uh, right. in the papers of, of Hay and Nicolay. And there, uh, that brings us to uh, the point I mentioned in the, the introduction to this segment that I thought I would ask you about, the famous uh, letter of Abraham Lincoln to the widow Bixby. Uh, your ideas on that uh, are, are different from the, the tradition. Uh, that's true, um, and that came about because of work I was doing at Brown. The librarians at Brown, as, as librarians at many institutions where I've done research, have been extremely helpful. Um, in fact, I'm here at Columbia today. I'm in the Columbia University Library going through the Alan Nevins papers <laughs> um, and um, in the hallway of Butler Library. And uh, one of the people here now on the staff at Columbia was on the staff at Brown and, uh, a few years ago when I was working at Brown, and she came up to me one day and she said, there's this scrapbook that John Hay kept uh, of his own writings that, that you might be interested in. And it was uh, about 120 pages of clippings that Hay had removed from newspapers and magazines, and it was mostly post-Civil War material, so I flipped through it fairly quickly until I got to the almost to the very end. And there were two pages of Civil War items, 
where Hay had clipped up poems that he had written or articles about him and pasted them in and in his own hand had identified the source of the clipping. And I scanned them, and I wasn't much interested in his literary career. Then down in the corner, I saw the Bixby letter. And I thought, now why would Hay go to a newspaper and clip out this letter signed by Abraham Lincoln and paste it into his own private uh, scrapbook of his own writings? I thought, hmm. And I knew there had been a controversy about the authorship of the Bixby letter. Several people, half a dozen people, said that Hay had told them toward the end of his life that he had written the Bixby letter and that it had been signed by Lincoln. And the manuscript of the letter has never turned up. We just know it from a newspaper uh, reproduction, or that is a, a, a typescript of it in the newspaper. So, uh, so I thought, hmm, this bears investigation. So just about that time, computerized editions of uh, word-searchable editions of Lincoln's writings were available. So I thought, well, let's just see if some of the words in this letter that don't sound quite Lincolnian to me actually show up in Lincoln's writings as collected by Roy Basler in the standard edition of Lincoln's collected works. And one of the words that was most striking to me was beguiled. I would not attempt to, to, to beguile you of a grief so profound. I thought, beguile. So I looked that up. Lincoln never used it. Then, unfortunately, there was no database of Hayes' writings. I just had to read everything he wrote. And I found beguiled used over 20 times, including twice in one article that he wrote during the Civil War. Then there were other stylistic fingerprints. I cannot refrain from tendering you, Hay, uh, the Bixby letter says. Well, Hay uses that pretty frequently in letters of condolence, and Lincoln never does. Um, and there were other words that uh, were similarly uh, common in Hayes' writings that were not common in Lincoln's. So I put that together, the stylistic evidence, the scrapbook evidence, and the fact that he told, allegedly, a half a dozen people that he wrote it, um, and it all added up to a conclusion, which seemed to me inescapable, that John Hay wrote it and Lincoln signed it. And it was not unusual for, for Hay to write routine letters for Lincoln to sign. That's true. And this would have been something like a routine letter because he, Lincoln receives a letter from the governor of Massachusetts saying that I have a constituent who lost five sons in the war and she deserves some special um, recognition and would you please offer her some recognition. Well, that's just in November of 1864. The, the, the White House is extremely busy. Uh, and so it seems entirely plausible to me that Lincoln said, John, would you take care of this, please? And Hay was quite a fine writer. He could answer not just routine uh, letters with routine responses, but uh, he was a poet and a, um, a gifted writer. Uh, and so he sat down and, and uh, composed this. Uh, it is, it's quite a beautiful letter. It doesn't sound much like Lincoln, but it is quite beautiful. Well, let me take a minute. I've, I've got it on the screen here in front of me, and just for the listeners who don't, remember it offhand. Uh, if you haven't read it somewhere, you may have seen it in the introduction or heard it, read in the introduction to the movie Saving Private Ryan. Uh, it begins with him saying, I, yes, I've heard you've lost five sons. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost, 
and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. So it is it really it really is beautiful. I can remember the first time I read it, I thought, wow, this is terrific. It is a powerful letter. Lincoln could write uh, very powerful and, and moving uh, consolation letters. The, the letter to Fanny McCulloch is, is probably the most well-known of those. Yes, it, and it is a very beautiful and touching letter, and it's, it, it is to somebody he knew <laughs> and uh, has a very personal tone, um, whereas this letter is to somebody, a constituent of the governor of Massachusetts, that was unknown to him, so he wouldn't feel compelled or impelled to write personally a letter to this widow, who, by the way, was lying about the number of sons she had lost. She lost two, and she was apparently trying to uh, cheat the government by getting five uh, pensions or death settlements um, for her supposed uh, loss of five sons. So uh, so Hay was, so, so it was not altogether wrong for Lincoln to regard this as maybe routine is too callous, but but a letter appropriate to have Hay write for him. Right, particularly he, since Hay was, he knew was a gifted writer. Yes. There's, um, there's an example where that goes the other direction. Uh, the letter uh, from, I, th- I think Harold Holzer quotes it in, in, in the Lincoln mailbag, or Dear Mr. Lincoln, where some constituent writes some uh, insane rambling letter about how this is the white man's country, white man is number one, right. black man is number right. two. And Lincoln writes back saying, uh, I cannot judge the objectivity of your letter not knowing if you are white or black, because that would, or if you are red or yellow. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing terribly here. No, that's good. Uh, but uh, a very sarcastic letter. Right. Uh, and then he has John Hay sign it. I think it was Nicolay, actually. Or does Nicolay sign that one? <laughs> right, I think. Um Yes, and I think that's another source of, of new material that, that is insufficiently explored, and I haven't done a lot of this, but a little. Um, I think an awful lot of the documents that are signed by cabinet members, particularly Secretary of War, Cameron and Stanton, uh, which start off, the president directs me to tell you that, were probably written by Lincoln himself, and then issued in the name of, of uh, Stanton or Cameron or General Halleck, um, uh, and uh, we don't have the manuscripts of those, unfortunately, uh, but an awful lot of them sound very much like Lincoln with his, his tone and his style. Is he just getting political cover for these or, or having someone else sign them then? Well, I'm not so sure that it's political cover. It's just I think he wants to make sure that the uh, the Secretary of War <laughs> says to the general uh, exactly what he, Lincoln, wants to have said. If you want it done right, you do it yourself. It's, right. It's, but right. then also it should be borne in mind that Lincoln was not trained as a military man and that Henry Halleck, the uh, uh, commander-in-chief of the Union armies, uh, general-in-chief of the Union armies, um, was uh, a trained military man, and he could translate Lincoln's wishes into uh, military language. So it was a two-way street. I'd say. About the Bixby letter, do you think the consensus in the Lincoln world has, has swung around to your view on that? Uh, I think so, but not a hundred percent consensus. It, it does a lot it, of, because people really want to. That there is a, there's a tradition in Lincoln writing that says that if you don't believe that Lincoln wrote the Bixby letter and that John Hay actually wrote it, that you're you're belittling Lincoln, that you're anti-Lincoln, which I think is preposterous. Um, no man who wrote the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural Address has to worry about his literary reputation being eclipsed 
Um, but there are people who think that, that the three great pillars upon which Lincoln's literary fame rests are the second inaugural, the Gettysburg Address, and the Bixby Letter. Well, even if you remove the Bixby Letter, the fame of, of Lincoln as a writer will, will be imperishable. So, uh, well, I, I would agree with that, certainly. And it does seem to me uh, the, the howls of protest uh, about your theory on the Bixby Letter have certainly diminished over the years. Mm-hmm. And I think more people do accept that. We've talked a lot about John Hay and John Nicolay. I, I was reading this week the uh, excerpt. I was, your publisher, I've forgotten who it was, uh, uh, sent the, the, the proofs of the volume you're editing of bits and pieces from the Nicolay and Hay 10-volume Lincoln biography where they actually talk about Abraham Lincoln. Right. And you've, you've edited that into a very interesting little uh, piece and it got me thinking about these two fellows in the White House, these two secretaries. Uh, one comment uh, that struck me as really interesting was the way Robert Todd Lincoln, uh, you point out, thought was pals with John Hay. Very close, yes. But had very distant regard for John Nicolay. Right. Why was that? Well, David Burns, uh, uh, a fine uh, historian, uh, amateur historian who was the head of the manuscripts division at the Library of Congress for many years um, has done a study of this, and he suggests that it was part of Robert Todd Lincoln's snobbishness that John Hay was from uh, an educated um, background. He had gone to Brown University. His um, uh, father and grandfather were college educated, uh, and he was a sophisticated man of the world, um, whereas Nicolay was a poor boy who had... Uh, scrabbled up uh, the hard way and uh, didn't have the kind of uh, elite background that John Hay did and that Robert Todd Lincoln felt more comfortable with people from elite backgrounds than he did from uh, backgrounds like Nicolay's. The irony couldn't have been lost on him that that's his own father you're describing. Uh, (laughs) I I trust that it wasn't lost on him, but uh, I think that it was certainly unconscious on his part. It was just the way he was uh, was, uh, structured. And as, as David Murn says, Robert Todd Lincoln was more Todd than he was Lincoln. He, he is almost, he's rarely referred to as Robert Lincoln. He's always Robert Todd Lincoln. That's true. Uh, maybe that's and subconscious. He, right. And I'm not a conspicuous admirer of Robert Todd Lincoln. I think he tends to be something of a stuffed shirt and a snob and um, uh, doesn't have his father's idealism or eloquence uh, or greatness of soul. But the thing that people usually... Um, criticizing Robert Todd Lincoln most severely is his decision to have his father committed to an insane asylum. And uh, there I think Robert Todd Lincoln has gotten a bum rap. That his mother, this is 10 years after the assassination, is clearly mentally incompetent at that point. She believes that Indians are attacking her and people are lifting the lid off of her head and pulling wires through her eyes. And she's wandering around the streets of Chicago with all of her all of her money and bonds and sewed into her petticoats. And she's a notoriously gullible woman. And Robert Todd Lincoln was understandably fearful that she might lose all her money to some uh, person who was taking advantage of her gullibility. Um, and in those in those days, you couldn't appoint a conservator to guard somebody's assets unless that person was in an insane asylum. And so Robert Todd Lincoln was in a terrible position. He either had to decide to incarcerate, have his mother incarcerated or to let her wander around the streets and perhaps lose all her money. Um, so uh, now the procedure that was used 
to determine that she should be incarcerated by modern standards is uh, a travesty of due process of law. But in 1875, the procedure that was in place was not Robert Todd Lincoln's devising, and was actually pretty progressive compared to the rest of the nation, although very retrograde compared to today's standards. And we we know much about this, uh, talking about hidden archives, from the the fact that Robert chose to keep the papers from that that proceeding, in contrast to what he did with a lot of other historical records. That's true. Uh, he, uh, Robert Todd Lincoln, I um, uh, gave a commission to a manuscript dealer in Springfield, Illinois, to buy up all the letters that uh, came on the market from his mother and destroy them because many of those letters were bad-mouthing him uh, after the decision to incarcerate her. And she only stayed uh, briefly in the insane cell for a few months. Um, And when she got out, she was uh, permanently estranged from her son and wrote lots of letters uh, criticizing him. Uh, So, yes, indeed, uh, there were many letters destroyed uh, at his behalf. And he kept... uh... But he kept the the the, the file, what uh, the, insanity file. the insanity file, right. that uh, that Mark Neely and and uh, Gerald McMurtry, uh, and McMurtry, yes, thank you, uh, that they wrote about uh, for the uh, describing the the trial, right, and, and, and giving pre- presenting it for the first time in in a, a light that was not completely damaging to to Robert Lincoln, right, and there's new evidence actually about the. Um, episode uh, that's just come to light. Uh, an enterprising young uh, uh, independent scholar named Jason Emerson has discovered letters that Mary Todd Lincoln wrote from the insane asylum to her attorney. Um, and some of those appeared uh, in an article last June in the American Heritage. And Jason Emerson has a book coming out with the Southern Illinois University Press next year on this new evidence about the uh, insanity trial and the incarceration of Mary Todd Lincoln. Well, that's a good place for us to take another short break. And, uh, Michael, I'm going to ask you more about uh, what else we might hope to learn about Lincoln. When we come back, that's what we'll talk about with Michael Burlingame on Civil War Talk Radio. 